All right, we are going to be in First John like we have been. By the way, let me make a quick announcement again just because I told you I would keep it before you. We still have no leads for our worship leader. We have a fantastic band. Jason leads it. He does such a great job. And in case you don't know, they're going to be leaving by the end of the year because they have to move in relate, related to their work, and they'll be too far away to attend here. So we're in the process looking for a worship leader. It's a, a going to be a paid part-time position. So just keep praying. And if you know of someone, please bring me that lead because we are actively looking. But as of right now, we have no lead. So, okay, just keep that before you. We're in First John, First John chapter 2, looking at verses 15 through 17 as we make our way through this book. If you don't have a Bible, as I've said before, just grab one of those blue Bibles underneath the seats around you. Pop that book open to page 1021. That'll bring you right to our text this morning. titled this message, Christians Do Not Love the World. Christians Do Not Love the World. Beloved, this fallen world that we live in is a world that I'm sure is a world you can relate to, you can relate to this, a world that regularly spews forth, I use that word, vomit, because that's how I think of it, vomits forth its perverted and corrupted philosophies and practices and does its very very best to convince us that what God calls evil is actually good. Or at least something that we should desire. And if we embrace, they say, the world's sinful ways, we will somehow experience the happiness and satisfaction that we long for. This fallen world, beloved, is under the power and influence of the evil one, as John refers to him in 1 John 5.19 and also in his gospel in John 17.15. The evil one, beloved, is Satan. This fallen world and its evil and demonic system offers people basically false hopes and unfulfilled promises. For those who believe its lies, It promises a great or full life, but in the end, it only returns pain and emptiness. It offers happiness and joy, but delivers only despair and misery. It says it can truly satisfy, but you know what? It just leaves people wanting more and more, totally unsatisfied and unfulfilled. For the time being, we as Christians have to live in this fallen world, right? But that doesn't mean we will or that we should love it or give our hearts to it. In fact, the cry of many Christians is no doubt reflected well in this simple chorus of this contemporary Christian song. Maybe you've heard it. It's titled, Where I Belong. Chorus goes like this, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. But while we live and we wait for Jesus in the new and glorious world to come, the Apostle John has some very important things to 
to say to us as Christians about our attitude and our relationship towards this fallen world. And that brings us this morning right to our text in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. So follow along with me as I read from this section of God's Word. The Apostle John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you're reading out of that ESV Bible that was on the ground, in verse 16 you'll notice it said pride in possessions, but their newest translation has turned it back to pride of life. I think that's a better translation, so their latest translation translates that passage that way. That's why I read it that way. So this morning, these short verses here, we're going to consider four, four compelling reasons why Christians do not and should not love this fallen world so that we might resist its deceptive and destructive lure. Lure. Any fishermen in here? One, two, three, four and a half, five, six. <laughs> Let's make a sheer awake. Lure. You know lure, right? What do you use that? It's, it's supposed to be pretty. It attracts. That's why I chose that word because that's exactly what the world is to people and even to Christians, unfortunately. It looks pretty. It looks shiny. It looks like something that's desirable. But what's behind it? Death. Suffocation. Lure, entice, tempt. Anyway, that's where we're that's where we're going this morning, beloved. Okay, and we're going to look at the first point. If you're if you have a bulletin, flip that thing open. You'll find there an outline. You'll find this crooked first point right there in the outline. You just got to kind of read it. Turn your head like this. It'll look straight. The command. That's the first one. The command. The first compelling reason is the command. We are commanded to, commanded to not love. This fallen world. Look back at the text with me. It's right there. This is simple. Easy outline. 1 John 2.15. Here it is, right from the Apostle John, recording God's inspired word. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now let me comment quickly on the terms love and world. Love first. The term here includes the idea of willfully, that's key, willfully setting our affections upon something and making it the object of our love. So one writer says, in regard to that, this. Love is a fit subject for such a commandment and prohibition because it is not an uncontrollable emotion, but the steady devotion of the will. You understand that? Leave it up there for a second. Love is a fit subject for such a commandment and prohibition. He's prohibiting us from doing something, specifically not loving the world. Why can he tell us to do that? Because it is not an uncontrollable emotion. 
We may treat it like that. It does not just overwhelm us. That's not what he's talking about here. That's when Jesus began to pray for his disciples, and then after that section, he extends that prayer to others who would believe, which would include us. And he prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, I'm not asking to take them out of this world, right? I'm not asking to remove them from the world. I mean, we're supposed to be the light of the world. You remove us, there's nothing left except darkness and evil. So I'm not asking you to remove them. I'm just simply asking you to protect them from the evil one. For they are not of this world. That's what Jesus says. They, my disciples, they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. What's he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about humanity. They're all human. He can't be talking about the globe itself. They're all from the earth in some level. He's talking about that evil system, that demonic system. They're not part of that. I've saved them out of that. Transferred them from darkness into light. They're no longer part of that system, just like I am not. Protect them from the evil one. Now, the fact that John appeals to Christians, listen, the fact that this command is here, he's telling us not to love the world. You know what that means? That means there is a real and ever-present temptation for us to do so. That's what it means. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for the command. Think about it, beloved. If there wasn't a temptation for us to give our heart to some degree to this world, then there'd be no reason to make the command because it would just be automatic. You know, you just become a Christian and boom, you're no longer tempted by this world's Lure, its shininess, its attractiveness. One writer says, as an appeal to the will, that is the will of man, his negative command, don't do this, implies that love can be misdirected. Our love can be misdirected. Our obedience to God, beloved, is not automatic, right? Do you know that? I wish it was. I wish it was just a flip of the switch, but it's not automatic. But it is commanded. Our obedience is commanded and it is expected of us as Christians because we have entered into a relationship with the Father of light in whom there is no darkness at all. You remember from last week, 1 John 2.13? He says, listen, I'm writing to you because you know the Father. That's why I'm telling you these things not to love the world. Listen, telling an unbeliever, someone who doesn't have a relationship with the Father or a non-Christian to not love the world is like or equivalent to telling a pig to stay out of the mud. It's useless. But John is speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians. They have the power to obey. He is warning and telling a Christian to not love an evil system that opposes and insults their Heavenly Father who they love and have fellowship with. That makes total sense to me. Now follow this logic with me. As we've been moving through the book of 1 John, I'm going to try to kind of piece these things together so we just keep this flow in our minds. We've already seen in 1 John 2, Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. That authentic, genuine, real deal Christians are characterized in part by what? 
Obedience. Obedience to what? God's Word. And we've talked about this, beloved. It's progressive obedience. It develops. It matures. It grows over time. Again, Christians don't become a Christian one day and then, boom, they're just instantly obedient to every command of Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, we could accomplish a lot as a church if that was true. But we are progressively becoming through Christ, through His grace, through His strength, through His power, through the Spirit that lives inside of us, through our relationship with the Father, gradually over time, more obedient to His Word. And in connection with that, Christians are characterized or should be by imitating Christ or walking as He walked. You remember that? That was in 1 John 2, 3-6, through 6, which primarily means, as we look at Jesus' life and imitating Him, it means this, doing what pleases the Father. Doing what pleases the Father, just like Jesus did. Now, as I have said in previous messages, unlike Christ, our obedience is not perfect. Right? We do not always do the things that please the Father. Is that true or no? It is true. And 1 John 2 won't even talks about that, but if you do sin, and you will, but... When we do, we must confess our sin. That's what we learned in 1 John, right? We're to confess our sin when we sin against our Father. That means we are to admit it. We don't hide from it. We don't try to bury it. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. We admit it. We openly confess it. And we agree. That's what that word means. Admit and agree with God that it's horrible, that it doesn't have any part of our life as those who have fellowship with God. It's vile. It isn't pretty, it's not attractive, it's deadly, it's vicious, and it shouldn't be a part of our lives. We confess our sin, 1 John 1, 8-10. through 10. We repent, we turn from it, and we continue as Christians trusting in our perfect advocate, Jesus Christ, to continue to maintain our relationship with the Father in spite of our sin, 1 John 2, 1-2. This Christian process that we've been looking at, outlined in 1 John, you know what? It results in a life pattern of obedience and Christ-likeness. It must. It has to. This pattern will certainly be interrupted by disobedience. We've talked about that, right? A pattern of obedience for the Christian interrupted by disobedience. But this process, as we have been looking at, as John describes, could not possibly create someone who has a life pattern of disobedience that is occasionally interrupted by some obedience. I've made that statement before in a different way, but I want to make it again. That's impossible, beloved. That cannot be true for the Christian. So, because Christians are commanded, commanded to not love the world, they must be on guard against this sin. Because that's what it is. And they will be internally motivated by their relationship with the Father to repent, to confess when they are disobedient, when they have allowed their love to be misdirected. Beloved, As a Christian, as a Christian, I must not, I must not, and as a pattern of life, will not 
love the world. Because my heavenly Father, through his word, has commanded me not to. It's that simple. It's that simple. And when I discover, and I do, and I'm certainly I will, when I discover that my love or my affection to some degree has gone astray or has been placed where it absolutely doesn't belong, looking for love in all the wrong places. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. That's okay. I must repent. I must repent. I must repent and obey his word. I must confess that sin. I must admit it and agree with God about it. It's vile. It's wicked. It has no part in my life. It only makes sense for me as a Christian to do that since love for this fallen, sinful, broken world is entirely incompatible with love for my Father. Which brings me to the second point. Look at it with me. The second point is the incompatibility. The incompatibility. We looked at the command. We'll look at the incompatibility. Loving this fallen world is incompatible with the love of God. It's the second part of 1 John 2.15. Beginning in the first part of the verse. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's the bottom line. This is simple. A love for the world, that is this evil world system, manifesting itself in sinful philosophies and practices. A system, by the way, that utterly opposes, rejects, and hates God and is ruled by Satan. Okay? Let's define it that way because that's what it is. It is the very enemy of God. It cannot, it cannot coexist with a love for God, the Father, a love for the world. It cannot. These are affections that cannot dwell or live together in the same human heart. They are incompatible. They are incompatible. One writer writes this, the reason why we are enjoined, told, commanded, not to love the world is because love for the Father and love for the world are mutually exclusive. If we are engrossed, given ourselves to, our attention to, if we are engrossed in the outlook of pursuits of the world, which, by the way, rejects Christ, it is evident that we have no love for the Father. John's saying now listen, he says here in verse 15, the second part of it, B, that's how I'm referring to it. If anyone loves the world, loves the world. And the world, the word loves, it's in the present tense in the Greek. And I've said this before, it simply means this. It, it indicates an, an ongoing or persistent or habitual love of the world. An unbroken pattern. One who makes the fallen world their continual object of their love. According to the Apostle John, that person cannot at the same time, truthfully anyway, claim to have love for God. Or to say it another way, they cannot claim to be a Christian who has fellowship with the Father while they are 
fully and completely and regularly and ongoingly giving themselves and their heart to a world that rejects him, hates him, and opposes him, and is governed and ran by Satan, the very enemy of God. Do you understand? The world seems a little confused about this. Some people who profess to be Christians seem a little confused about this. But the scriptures are clear. And because love for God and love for this fallen world is incompatible, they, don't, they can't dwell together. Christians, true Christians, those who love the Father, you know what? We need to be on guard then against loving or embracing on any level, to any degree, at any time, a God-hating world system. And if and when that occurs, that we do love the world to some degree, you know what we have to do? We repent. We repent because love of the world cannot coexist with our love for the Father. They just don't go together. They are flat out incompatible. In fact, it is an absence of love for an evil world system and the appearance of love for God that must and will characterize the true Christian. Beloved, we do not and should not love this world because why? We have been commanded to. And Christians obey the word of God as a way of life, not perfectly, but as a way of life. We do not and should not love this world because the love of this world is flat out incompatible with the love of our Father, our Heavenly Father. Third, let's look at the character. The character. We looked at the command, the incompatibility, now the character. The character of this fallen world does not come from the Father. He is not the source of it. Verse 16 of 1 John, look back at your text. John says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father. Pride and possessions, that's an old translation. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. The verse begins with, verse 16, for, that word, for, which means that John is giving a reason or support for what he just said in verse 15. He's explaining himself now. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why, John? Why would you say that? Because, here's why. All that is in the world, which is now broken into three categories for us, is not from God. It's not from the Father, but it's from that evil world system. And he divides it up, as I said, into three categories. And he says the desires of the flesh, or as the New American Standard Bible translates it, the lust of the flesh. Maybe that will help you a little bit. The desires, or lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or as the New American Standard Bible translates it, the boastful pride of life. These all speak of sinful attitudes and desires that characterize this fallen world and clearly, clearly are not from the Father. 
The NIV translates, this is a New International Version, translates verse 16 like this. I found this helpful, so I include this sometimes this way. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. As I said, these are the sinful attitudes that characterize this fallen world. They are part of the world system that hates and rejects God. One writer says, it is a system of values, values and goals from which God is excluded. That's a good definition. God has nothing to do with this fallen world in that sense. Well, let's look at them quickly. Let's look at these sinful attitudes as they're broken up. How about the first one, the desires of the flesh? The desires of the flesh, as the ESV translates it. What is that? Well, the Greek word that is translated desires in the ESV is sometimes used to speak of good desires. I think that's why the ESV translated it that way, just to let you know it. The word really is desires, and it can, it can be used to speak of good desires. You, you can find that in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. Same Greek word, there is talking about good desires. But more often than not, it is meant to mean sinful desires, sinful desires, and that is the case here in this context. The original Greek word, translated desires, literally means a longing for, a longing for. And it is often used in reference to a longing for what is forbidden. What is forbidden. That's why the NASB translates it lust. To lust after. Trying to communicate that thought to you. And the NIV simply translates it cravings. Still getting that longing or desire aspect. But then they make sure you understand what they're talking about by saying cravings of sinful men. The desires here are of the flesh. These, these longings, these cravings, these lusts come forth from the flesh. I think flesh is best understood here as, as the sinful human nature that is rebellious toward God and as one writer says, pursues its own end in, or its own ends in self-sufficient independence of God. That's a good definition of the flesh. Bottom line is this. The character of the evil world system is a rebellious, selfish, and sinful craving, lusting, or desiring of that which God forbids or prohibits. Does that sound like something I should be giving my affections to as a Christian? No matter how it's packaged, beloved, and they package it real pretty, Right? When I'm trying to catch a fish, I don't advertise it's a hook. Commenting on the phrase desires of the flesh, one writer says, any and every desire of man in his rebellion against God is what is meant by desires of the flesh. And that's why the NIV translation of the cravings of sinful man is accordingly justified. It's a good translation. Beloved, the fallen world, we could talk about examples of this, but you know, you live here with me. You live in this place. Just one example. The world glorifies and promotes 
sin. They sell it. People buy it. So one example, sexual immorality and all the perversion floods into our homes and places now in all of its forms. It's just one example of what I'm talking about. The desires of the flesh. How about the second sinful attitude? The desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes. Translated lust of the eyes in the New American Standard Bible, in the New King James Bible, in the New International Version, all of them choosing to use the word lust. They're trying to capture the meaning here for you. The basic thought, again, is a sinful longing or desire that is aroused by what one sees. By what one sees. One writer says this, it is the greed which is aroused by what one sees. So in other words, the object itself may not be sinful. It is our reaction, our response to that object that becomes sinful. To say it another way, this is a sinful craving or yearning to acquire a thing seen. When thinking about this phrase, two words, greed and covetousness. Greed and covetousness. We live in a materialistic world, don't we? Don't we? People are always grasping for more. Never enough. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I need it. Probably not. Third, sinful attitude. This is interesting. The pride of life pride of life or the pride of possessions as the one translation of the ESV has it. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, it adds the word boastful here to pride. The boastful pride of life. Because, and here's why they do this, the Greek word translated pride here as we have it in our ESV, it comes from another Greek word. So this other Greek word is in that Greek word. And that Greek word means braggart or boaster braggart or boaster now this is someone you can probably think of someone like this this is someone who talks immodestly that means they lack humility they lack humility when they speak or they talk with excessive pride about themselves excessive pride one writer points out that while the other two attitudes of the world that is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes relate to what one wants or desires this particular sinful attitude or characteristic relates to what one has or possesses or professes to have. Professes to have. And he uses the word professes, and in this sense he means declaring falsely. In other words, saying you have it, but you really don't have it. Because the Greek word implies, translated pride here, it implies a state of pride or arrogance but with the implication of complete lack of basis for such an attitude. You understand what I just said? I'll read it again. A state of pride or arrogance, but with the implication of complete lack of basis for such an attitude. The pride or arrogance or boasting, as we look at this passage, is connected specifically to one's life, 
That's what it says, right? Pride of life is the phrase in verse 16, which the NIV translates as boasting of what he has, this person, and what he does. What he has and what he does. That's a good way to understand this term, life. And that's why the ESV used the translation possessions, what he has and what he does. So let me put this all together for you now. The meaning of the pride of life then is a sinful attitude that characterizes this fallen world, manifesting itself, demonstrating itself, showing itself in boastfulness and unsupported self-exaltation based on one's worldly possessions or status or personal achievements in life. It is an attitude, here it is, it is an attitude of inflated self-importance and a desire to outshine others. Look at me. No, really. Look at me. Am I not awesome? Okay, so it doesn't usually come out like that, but it comes out in other ways. This is a person, one writer says, of showy pride. And I like this, in their own non-existent importance. That is the world, beloved. That is the world. These things are not from God. The desires of the flesh, rebellion and sin, the desires of the eyes, greed and covetousness, the pride of life, inflated self-importance. These things are not from the Father but they are from an evil world system corrupted and polluted by sin and under the influence of Satan. And so one writer writes this, Because these things do not derive their origin from the Father, and so are contrary to His nature and purposes, let the readers be warned against allowing such attitudes to establish their power over their lives. Pop it up. I want to read it again. I want you to see this. Because these things that we just talked about do not derive their origin from the Father, the Heavenly Father, the one we as Christians have fellowship with, the one we love, the one who loves us, and they are contrary to His very nature and purposes. Let the readers be warned. Let us be warned against allowing such attitudes so destructive so sinful to establish their power over their lives by us giving our hearts to them, our affections to them in any level and in any way. Beloved, we do not and should not love this world because we have been commanded not to. Love for this world is entirely and completely incompatible with our love for the Father. And the character of this fallen world, certainly you can see, does not come from him. It comes from a, a dark place. Finally, the irrationality. The irrationality. Fourth reason, convincing reason, we should not and must not love this world. Irrationality. Loving this fallen world is irrational, beloved, in light of its transitory nature. Its transitory nature. Its temporariness. 1 John 2.17, John writes, And the world, this fallen world system, this broken system, 
is passing away. Along with all of its desires, its evil lust, its pride of life, its sinful cravings, they're passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The evil world system, beloved, with all of its sinful desires, attitudes, philosophies, and practices, with all of its hate of Christ and rebellion towards God, with all of its empty promises to satisfy or bring fulfillment, all of it, every last bit of it, is passing away. And by the way, that phrase, passing away, it's in the present tense. So again, here's what it means. It means it is right now in the process of and continuing to disappear. This fallen world system that is so appealing to so many and holds sway, sadly, over so many hearts will eventually and completely be obliterated. That's what John is saying. Utterly wiped out. You know when that's going to happen? When Christ... Jesus, the righteous King, returns to this earth to rule and reign and take back possession of this place. This present age, beloved, is doomed. Stop trying to save it. I'm trying to see people saved. I'm not trying to save this present age. I can't. It's a passing away. It's doomed, it's transitory, it's momentary. Its very days are limited and they are numbered by God. Thank God. One writer says this, oh, I like this quote. All the vanity of this evil world with its devices is passing away. It has already begun to putrefy, decay, rot. It is a corpse, yet not buried. That's good. In contrast, those who are saved and as a result live for God, know, are promised that they will abide or live forever. They have and will enjoy eternal life with God, with their eternal Father, their Heavenly Father, and with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Their hope, beloved, our hope, Christians' hope, if you're here today and you're a true Christian, authentic, genuine Christian, our hope is grounded in permanence. Our focus is on the eternal. Or it should be. And since that is true, and it is, It makes absolutely no sense to give ourselves to or set our affections on that which is nothing but a corpse that is not yet buried. There is no hope in it. There is no future for it. There is no permanence there. There is no fulfillment. It will surely pass away. For it is already rotting away. It is absolutely irrational. It is irrational. That's what sin is, by the way. Beloved, when you and I engage in sin, it's irrational. It's illogical. It's just flat out stupid. It is. It's the dumbest thing that we do. 
It's irrational for the Christian who will live forever to invest their hearts or to give their hearts to that which will not endure and is destined to be destroyed by God. It's irrational. Let me give you an illustration quickly. I, I do buy stocks, and I would not buy stocks in a company that was in the process of going out of business. Right? I mean, I buy, when I buy stocks in a company, it's because I believe that they're going to endure, they're going to grow. Obviously, I don't believe they're going to go on forever, but I believe they're going to go on long enough to return a profit to my checking account. Now, if I bought stocks in a company or companies that were going under, they were going under and they were destined for bankruptcy, what would you think of me? A fool, thank you very much. Got that one. I heard a rational. That was a little more pleasant, but and that fits the, uh, the sermon outline. But that's fine. Fool, no fools. Fools deserving. Idiot, moron. Are you out of your mind? Why would you do that? Certainly my wife would have some interesting words for me if I engaged in such idiotic behavior. Christian! Do not love the world. It's passing away. There's nothing in it for you. There's nothing in it for you. If people knew, let me ask you this, if people knew that the Titanic was going to sink, if they knew that, if they were told that by God or the Apostle John, regardless of how beautiful and it was a beautiful ship. It appeared. Or even the promise that it made, that it was unsinkable. Would anybody in their right mind get on that ship? Get off the Titanic, folks. It's a sinking. We don't belong there. You and I don't belong on the Titanic. So one question for you this morning, just as you meditate on these things. To, to what extent, ask yourself this. Maybe you have some other questions for yourself, but ask yourself this. To what extent has love of this fallen world, to what extent has love for this fallen world invaded or taken root in your heart? Examine yourselves. Examine yourself. Don't love this world. Don't give it any place for your affections. It does not deserve it. It is not worthy of it. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. This morning we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion together. Very fitting to end our time together in this passage. I'll be reading from this passage that we've read almost every time that we do communion because it's where we get the instruction for it in part. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23-26. Beloved, let me remind you what communion is about. 
You and I as Christians, and that's who this is for. If you're not a Christian, don't partake of this meal together. It's for believers, okay? We partake of this meal because Jesus Christ laid down His life. It's a way of remembering that, memorializing that, celebrating that. He laid down His life to purchase us, to purchase our souls, to secure for us salvation, forgiveness, that we might be declared right with God. And He has made us His very possessions. He owns us. He owns us. And He did that that we might be brought out of darkness and into the light, that we might live for God and have fellowship with Him and follow after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you partake in this meal, how crazy it would be to be giving your heart away to a world that is completely opposed to the very one who laid down his life on your behalf. Just, it wouldn't make sense. Let's read, I'll read the text. Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, So he told me, I told you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, this this represents my body, which is for you. Right? This is the eve of his crucifixion. In a few short hours, he he will hang on a cross. He will give his body for his people. He says, do this in remembrance of me. When you take this communion meal, you're remembering that I gave myself for you to rescue you, to save you. In the same way, he took the cup, a cup of wine, after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ spilt his blood, which means he gave up his life. He gave up his very life that you and I, who have placed our faith in Him, might have eternal life. Wow. And then in verse 26, don't ever leave out verse 26 because it's so critical. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup as we're going to do this morning right now, you know what we're doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Yes, on our behalf, that sacrifice, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. Don't miss the word. Until. What? He comes. And that's just a constant reminder when we partake of this meal. It's a reminder again. This is not my home. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile here. Live accordingly. I'm a waiting. I'm a passing through. I'm a longing for His return when He'll bring with Him the real world. The righteous one the one I belong in because He has saved me and rescued me and redeemed me for that very purpose. The elements are going to be passed around here in a moment. Again, it's for you. If you're a Christian, this is your meal. This is your celebration. Partake with gladness, but take a moment to meditate maybe on some of the things that we've looked at this morning from God's Word. We will partake of the elements, the bread and the drink, 
together at the very end. Let me pray for those elements and they'll come forward and pass them around. Father God in heaven, I thank you for you. Yes, I thank you for you. We come here today to celebrate you because you are so worthy. Father, I thank you for your word. It's power. It's strength, it's might, it's ability to transform us, to change us into the people that you want us to be and we need to be. Oh, how desperately we need to be. For our own good and for your glory. Father, how much we surrender by being fools and idiots and engaging in sin. Oh, the joys and delights we give up by placing our affections upon this corrupt, sinful, rotting, decaying world. Father, set our hearts right. May we come before you even now in this moment in repentance, in confession, crying out to you, seeking your forgiveness and finding it because of Jesus Christ. Father, may you restore the joy of our salvation and the hope of heaven deep into our hearts and our minds that we might truly live in this life as strangers and exiles and recognize this world is a passing away and all those who have given themselves to it will pass away with it so that we might in love tell our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers Get off the Titanic. It's a sinking. Come to Jesus and find eternal life. We thank you for this meal. We thank you for what it memorializes. We thank you for the death and sacrifice of your Son, our dear, loving, sovereign, powerful, almighty Judge, Savior. We thank you for it. We ask that you would bless it. And Father, we ask that you would bless your people. And we shall be blessed. In Jesus' name.